looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up? Excuse me while I whip this out. Oh, gnarly! Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. I'm surrounded by assholes. And good evening, friends. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Are you annoyingly even keel? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, all right? I need help. E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Oh, yeah. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh, my God. Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. This medicine is made for extreme cases of being even keel or having extreme depression. Ah, oh, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my. I'm Tom McLaughlin, Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6. You're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Promise online. And you hear the music below because we established that as well. But he's probably best known for being a director on Friday the 13th. Jason Lewis, Tom McLaughlin. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? No complaints on this end. Nobody listens anyway. So it's nice. Well, first, thank you for doing this. But also want to mention, and I think we can be full disclosure here is, 
when I initially came back and asked you about doing this again last week, you mentioned you were writing. So can you talk about a little bit about what you're actually writing currently? Well, I have a, a, a few different projects. Uh, I tend to be one of those people that, you know, start an idea and then, you know, if it, you know, passions me enough that I keep, can keep going, I get it finished right away. If not, you know, I shift gears and go into another idea. So I, at this point, I have, you know, one that's definitely completed uh, from last year that I'm waiting on uh, the lawsuit to resolve itself with Friday the 13th because I, I wrote basically a sequel to my Jason Lives, uh, which is kind of a departure from what the normal Fridays have been in that um, it takes place in the winter, in the snow. Um, so it's, you know, kind of a completely different way to look at Crystal Lake. Secondly, it, it's an all-female cast except Jason, which is something that has been done before. And then there's a few little twists along the way that, um, as a Friday fan and seeing all the other movies, I've tried to find a few things that, you know, haven't done, been done quite this way yet. So hopefully, you know, for, for anybody that loves the series, it'll be something, you know, fresh as well as familiar because I, you know, you never want to depart too far from what the, uh, the format is that people love. So that's finished and kind of waiting, waiting out the, the this lawsuit to happen. And then I uh, wrote uh, and still writing on a thing that's called uh, Dawn of the Dogs, uh, which uh, I'll just kind of leave the title out there. <laughs> you can kind of imagine, you know, what I'm sort of paying tribute to, but doing it, uh, you know, in a canine way. And uh, <laughs> and then the thing I just completed is uh, called The Hanging Tree, which is actually a short film um, for, if it all works out, for the Eye uh, Horror Channel, uh, which is a network, um, internet channel, and uh, it's going to be something that is being uh, done by a number of horror guys are involved with it. Uh, Daniel uh, Merrick, who created the Blair Witch Project, was the writer-director on that, one of them on that. And uh, and then uh, Jeremy Rednick, uh, who did the final uh, Destination franchise, is also involved as a writer-director on this. So it's, you know, they're they're pulling together all the funds, I think, uh, I think Daniels has been shot already, so they're, you know, they're all like you know, half-hour um, little horror pieces, and, um, you know, so that was the thing that uh, I just finished up on. Well, you mentioned there, and I was going to bring it up, and obviously most fans of horror, the smart fans, which most are smart, uh, are aware of this lawsuit going back and forth, and I know it don't directly involve you. But have you heard any progression on if that being settled or a conclusion well, coming up? Uh, go ahead. All we kind of all we kind of know, um, and it's again not definite, but you know, basically Victor Miller, the writer, won the first round of this. So Victor, at this point, has a control of the title Friday the Thirteenth, and he has control of remaking you know, the original Friday the 13th. But he doesn't have rights to the hockey mask killer Jason. That Sean Cunningham has, and Sean has the ability to make a Friday the 13th titles thing for Europe, but not for America. So Sean wasn't happy with that outcome of the judgment, and so he appealed. And uh, so the appeal is what's going on now that supposedly is supposed to be um, – 
you know, settled this summer at some point. But since the COVID thing um, and lawsuits and court cases and all that stuff, everything's kind of been pushed off. We don't know, you know, if it will get, you know, rectified over this over the summer or not. But uh, that's kind of where it's at at the moment. And either one of us, I don't think, are lawyers, but we play them on TV once in a while. But you would think at the end of the day there's money to be made for everybody. And can't we all just get along here? <laughs> well, you know, Jonathan, it's, it's sometimes not just about the money. Um, I mean, these are older guys. I mean, we all are older guys, but uh, yeah. they, they, it's not like they need the money. I mean, they're, they're, they're well off and I'm sure their children, you know, are well off and maybe even their children's children. So, you know, it gets down to much more of a, um, you know, who's controlling what and how long these guys have battled and who wins. Sometimes it's more about winning and getting, you know, everything that you want as opposed to just, all right, look, you know, you get 10, 10 gazillion dollars and I get 10 gazillion dollars and let's walk away. And it's like, no, 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 no. I also want, you know, it's like it doesn't always, you know, end nicely uh, when it gets down to just being about money. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just, you know, I, I just want the money and that's it. You know, you, you know, uh, you, you. We're in a, a relationship with somebody, and then they break up, and it's like, no, I want, you know, half of everything. No, and I also want, you know, all the kids, and I want, all, you know, it's just it's like a divorce that, that occurs, you know, within a, a creative um, entity like these guys. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's more than just the money. Yeah, and, uh, you know, hopefully things will be settled uh, soon, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah. you... In terms of uh, putting together movies, because you write, you direct it, you've done all kinds of things within the industry, but do you try to find little ways to incorporate or doing movie magic since you're the son of a magician, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, nobody has quite asked me that before. I kind of bring that up, that, yeah, my my childhood was really – kind of a strange thing of, uh, yeah, my dad was a, a magician and a fire eater, which is kind of a freaky thing. So, uh, you know, like, you are now. yeah, it was, um, it was, it was strange because I, um, you know, I, I had all friends who, of course, you know, their parents weren't in any kind of show business. And, you know, there's one thing, you know, being an actor or director or whatever but another thing that your dad is a magician and a fire reader and obviously the fire reader thing in particular was was pretty strange and um for me though it really made him special in a way that was just beyond you know just being a father you also was sort of like you know like a circus performer he was in a lot of movies um in the uh 40s and 50s where you know he was the fire reader if the if the uh, story had something to do with a carnival or, or circus or medieval times or whatever. So, you know, all those aspects to it were also, you know, very cool. But just the whole thing of growing up also wanting to be a magician myself. I never, you know, was intrigued with doing the fire eating thing, but the magic uh, was important to, to be able to actually make money, you know, performing at parties and stuff when I was young. And then I would use that money to buy Super 8 film. 
so I could make my little, you know, films that I wanted to do because that was still, a, you know, a, a big thing from the time I was seven um, that I wanted to make films as well. So, you know, both things kind of serviced each other, both from a financial thing and then just from the, you know, the imagination of trying to make, you know, something magical occur with film, um, you know, on screen. Not Obviously, we didn't have any you know, effects that we could do with digital effects or whatever. You have to kind of create it, you know, on screen if you wanted something to happen, you know, uniquely. So it was a good education um, of really a kind of understanding illusion because that's all film really is, is an illusion. Now, speaking of that unique uh, childhood growing up with, uh, where did the uh, becoming a mind come into the effect there? That, that was that was an interesting turn. Um, when I was about twelve, I guess it was uh, the Beatles hit, and the Rolling Stones, and all these English um, rock and roll acts. And what I noticed very quickly is that yes, I could be a magician and and uh, entertain people, but if I wanted girls, I needed to grow my hair and be in a band because that's what you know all the girls were very enthusiastic about and would scream and yell. So it didn't take me long to figure out I needed to, you know, be a musician and learn some some uh, some musical instrument or what I ended up doing was singing and, and performing and joined a group and then another group. And then one of the groups I was involved with, uh, The Sloth, um, made, a, made a record called Making Love that none of the radio stations would play because the title was considered too provocative in 1965. That uh, you, you know you couldn't say that on AM radio, making love. So um, the band broke up, and we all did you know various other bands and things. And then uh, at around '69, when things started to get really ugly in Los Angeles with the Manson murders and the uh, the rock and roll legends were all overdosing, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Jim Morrison, who we used to perform with the Doors. Um, just, you know, uh, Janis Joplin, all these people. And it, it suddenly seemed like the whole rock and roll scene started to get kind of ugly and negative. And um, I heard about this thing called Mime. And when I saw a little bit of, of it, I thought, well, that could make me kind of a unique lead singer. Why don't I stop and go and study this and see if I can, can you know, put that into my performing style so that I would be different than uh, Mick Jagger or James Brown or any of the other singing performers that I loved, and went to Paris and studied with uh, the French mime Marcel Marceau, and was kind of the you know starving artist in Paris for a year, uh, learning, and then I came back, and I had no money, I had no girlfriend, I ended up performing on the streets for about a year, and uh, whatever I made, you know, put the hat down was, you know, how I ate and how I paid the rent, and that, you know, eventually kind of led to me, you know, writing things that would be, you know, visual comedy pieces, and then I put together a group called the L.A. Mime Company, and then we ended up on the Dick Van Dyke series, Van Dyke and Company, and I got a nomination for writing on that show for the uh, Emmys, and it made me start to think, well, maybe I wanted to like, write as a, you know, as a way to get into directing, because I still wanted to direct things, and that kind of was the transition there, so the mime kind of led me you know, into the writing area, and then, you know, and then from there I wrote a script uh, called One Dark Night, you know, which became my first directorial feature. And with all this, before, well, before I get into this question, 
course, we've mentioned music a couple of times here. Source.org. Uh, check it out. What uh, a music standpoint. But does the performing aspect of different things, whether it be mine or music or anything else, how much does that mindset help you with directing and writing? Quite a bit. Um, if nothing else, from the standpoint of understanding the acting process, uh, I'm still doing uh, small parts in different films now um, as an actor. Uh, most of them are, you know, oddball different parts because I, you know, I enjoy that. Um, there's a there's a, a film that you can see on YouTube called Friday the Thirteenth Vengeance, and the opening scene is. Uh, me and C.J. Graham, who played my Jason and Jason Lives, and he's playing Jason's father, which was something that I had, you know, attempted to try to do when my Friday the 13th was to introduce Jason's father. And, you know, that didn't happen because they wanted to just keep the focus on Jason at that point. And these, you know, young guys who are all fans decided that, you know, they wanted to pick up that story and ask me if it was okay and ask me if I wanted to play an old caretaker of the opening sequence and I said yeah sounds great so you know you can actually see me you know performing in that movie um, and then there's been a number of other little things that I've you know kept doing over the years um, so I kind of understand you know the thinking of what goes into being an actor and what you know what you have to do as a director to kind of protect that um, and that make that space comfortable for an actor and you know just also the performing part of me uh, kind of allows another creative outlet and that, you know, because there's not times when you're always going to be writing or always directing or always even performing, but if you have the ability to kind of bounce around from thing to thing, you know, there's always some place to put, you know, your creative energy. Well, we beat around the bush a little bit here, but obviously most people are familiar with you with uh, Pit 6. Uh, were you a fan of the franchise prior to uh, getting involved? No, I was not. I saw the first Friday the 13th, the, you know, the original um, that, you know, obviously wasn't Jason. And uh, I just, I thought that was terrific. I thought, you know, they kind of took the Halloween idea and kind of spun it in a different way. And, of course, the effects, the kills and all that were far more graphic and, and, and gruesome and uh, the way John Carpenter did Halloween and that was shocking and different and then the twist that it was you know the mother uh, character and, and not some other character not some other killer um, I thought was great but then what happened was as, as a horror fan and you know writer and director in Hollywood um, everybody wanted to do a slasher movie because it was the cheapest thing to do, you know, get somebody, put them in a mask of some sort, you know, go into the woods, have kids to kill, um, you know, that that you could get a deal, you know, to, to make a movie from. And I was much more interested in more of a gothic horror, you know, things that, that I saw from the my, my influences from Edgar Allan Poe and the movies like, you know, The Haunting and um, The Innocence and things. I, I wanted to be character-driven and um, something that, you know, that really kind of played with your imagination and was creepy. So, you know, I kind of just stopped going to, you know, the slasher movies because it just, to me, everybody was kind of copying everybody else. So 
when I got the offer to do the Friday the 13th, I said, well, I need to see all the movies, you know, because I only saw the first one and sat down at Paramount Studios and watched all of them back to back. And, you know, it gave me a sense of, okay, what they have done with it. And then my challenge was, okay, well, what can I do different that hasn't been done? Um, so one thing was the sense of humor that I tried to put to it, that it had, a, you know, sort of was satiring, you know, slasher movies as well as making one. And then introducing kids, which nobody had, had done before. And then making it a little more of like a movie where it had a real plot, you know, that Tommy digs up Jason. Jason, you know, is now pissed off. He's, you know, back out of the grave and is going after Tommy, you know, for vengeance. And then Tommy's story is like trying to convince people that he's back. And, of course, you know, the sheriff thinks that he was the one that's doing these killings because he's some crazy kid. And then ultimately, Jason, you know, came up with the notion Jason needed to be returned to the place where he originally died, which is kind of, you know, ghost, you know, mythology. So I tried to put more of a storyline to it. And um, since that time, since I obviously got involved in the, that film and that it's been as beloved as it is, which shocks me at 35 years later, like we're, people are still talking about it and loving it. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how long it's it's lasted that I've become you know, much more of a fan of, uh, of the slasher genre and the, the, the things that are good about it and the things that sort of are, you know, like, well, we, we don't, <laughs> we don't like that part, but we sort of accept it as what it is. So yeah, it, it, it took me kind of a while to come to the, you know, the table on that, but you know, my preference is still, you know, horror movies that really, have something to do with an element that you identify with the characters. So, I mean, my still my top favorite horror movie of all time is The Exorcist because, you know, being in the theater and watch how that just really messed with people's minds and freaked them out to the point they were running up the aisles and throwing up and ambulances were called and, you know, you know, you hear all these legends, but it was true. I mean, I was there, you know, that first opening week and it, it was incredible, the reaction. So, you know, that has always stuck with me as like sort of the defining type of horror movie where you care about the characters and then something's happening to some innocent, you know, element in the story. Of course, in that case, it was the Reagan character. Um, that is just absolutely horrific and so frightening because if that can happen to a little girl, God, you know, what could it do to me? So it, it really had a quite quite an impact on me. Well, obviously, we have the hindsight of, 30 plus years, as you mentioned there, and it's pretty known that you are a uh, gothic horror fan. How much were you able, do you think, uh, you were able to sprinkle in as far as the gothic horror compared to everything else within the franchise and in other movies? Well, I was really blessed in that um, Frank Mancuso Jr., who was the executive of Paramount in charge of the Friday series, um, was desperate to win back the fan base because part five really pissed off a lot of the fans because at the end of it, as you probably know, it, you know, it wasn't Jason. It was, you know, this vengeful ambulance driver. And it also hinted at the fact that, you know, Jason's dead, but Tommy put on the mask and maybe Tommy's now going to be the new Jason. And there were a lot of fans that just hated that. Um, it, it's come to become, you know, one of the you know favorites as well over the years because it's just you know so 
intense and and you know the way that uh Danny Steinman, the director, you know, went at it, you know, very, very different than the other ones were. So when I was hired, um, basically they were, you know, they did a Friday every two years. Now they were doing one only a year uh, after the other one. So there was this panic that we, we've got to get the fan base back. So we're going to, you know, put another one into production right away. Um, Frank had seen my One Dark Night, saw what kind of style I did, and said, yeah, I'd love to see what you would do with this, because I think it would be a little different. And, of course, that's, you know, the gothic um, aspect that I was bringing to it. And, you know, I said, well, what else do you want from me in terms of since I was going to write it and direct it? And he just said, bring back Jason some way, figure out how to bring him back from the dead. And that was it. And so pretty much everything else that you see in that movie is purely me. Um, he gave me incredible creative freedom. It was very encouraging. Um, he was the one that came to me and said, what do you think of Alice Cooper? You know, I go, God, that would be great. I mean, I, I knew Alice when he was Vincent back in the 60s and had a group called the Naz and we performed together. So that would be super cool to have him do the music. And Frank was always just incredibly supportive of anything, you know, that I was going to do. The only thing that, you know, I turned in the, the original treatment was that I had, you know, at the very end, introducing Jason's father. And that was the only thing he said, you know, I think it's a great idea, but I don't want the fans to think like at the end of part five, that the next one's not going to be about Jason. It's going to be about Jason's dad. You know, I don't want, you know, that we can't let that be what they come away thinking. So, you know, that, that was the only thing that we kind of took out and left it you know, with Jason down at the bottom of the lake, you know, waiting, you know, for his resurrection, which I think ultimately was the right choice because people just wanted to know, you know, he's back, he lives, you know, and he'll be back again. And that's, you know, much to everybody's shock, you know, there was what, six more Fridays after yeah. that. So, you know, it, it, it did kind of serve its purpose to, uh, you know, bring the, bring the series back again. Well, you mentioned about uh, his father a few times here, but if I'm not mistaken, and I'm not a fan of this in particular, but he uh, or they took that story or somebody did and made it into a comic, correct? Yes. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it wasn't makes it interesting because I know comic fans are big into stories and whatnot. But answer this for me, if you can. Is it true that a meter man was scared to check your meter because you own the tombstone from your movie and it's sitting in your backyard? Yes, that is true. Um, the the uh, you know I, I at the end of the movie um, I asked for two props. One was his tombstone, which is actually a real tombstone. It's concrete and weighs a ton. And the other was Jason's coffin. So both of those things, you know, were shipped back from Georgia where we shot, you know, to Hollywood. And um, I had the coffin down in my basement, and then I had the, uh, the tombstone out in my yard. And one of the houses I had had a, you know, um, kind of a tiny little back area, a small amount of dirt and yard uh, where the gas meter also was. So uh, there was one time where um, obviously the guy who came to read it, you know, came back there and he saw a gravestone and he thought obviously somebody was buried back there and that just 
freaked him out. So he went, you know, went back and reported that he couldn't read the meter because there was, you know, a, a graveyard uh, where it was, which I found, you know, wonderfully amusing. And it had the same thing, too, if, if you know, I needed to have somebody help me take something out of the basement or whatever, and you open up the basement door and you see this coffin there, you know, like, you know, Dracula's lair or something. And that freaked out a lot of people. So, um, yeah, they, both of those uh, stories, you know, are, are, are true. So did you have to have any uh, explanation to, say, city officials when this guy goes, hey, uh, there might be a uh, burial in this, this property back here? No, I just kind of enjoyed the laugh and said, "No, no, it's a it's a prop from a movie. I'm a you know film director, so that's 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 what's back there. It's not like I'm you know burying people in my backyard." <laughs> Plus, you if you were, you wouldn't be making it that obvious anyway. Yeah, well, you know, that's what I would think. You know, especially if it was you know you murdered somebody, you know, the last thing you want to do is point an arrow at it, but. You know, obviously to this guy, it was something that was, uh, you know, really freaked him out, you know. Now, what is this video game that came out a few years ago? I've been out of the video game scene for a few years, but heard many a talk of it. Was it just computers? Was it for a game system? What was that, and what was your involvement? Well, the Friday the 13th, the game um, is still going on and still doing incredibly well um this uh company um they call themselves gun productions or gun entertainment or something um they came up with this concept of making a game that involved a slasher and they didn't think they were going to get the rights to friday the 13th but they you know actually went to paramount and paramount said yeah yeah go ahead um and they you know figuring that these guys weren't going to make anything that was going to be you know, make any money or any of that. And they got together with Sean Cunningham and uh, Tom Savini and Harry Manfredini, the composer, um, and uh, uh, Kane Hodder to play Jason. And they put together, you know, this incredible game that was very complex and, you know, very unique and seemed like a Friday the 13th on steroids because there's stuff that Kane Hodder could do to victims that you could never get away with in a regular movie and get like a, you know, triple X in terms of the violence. And <laughs> uh, I was contacted to uh, come up with some backstory for uh, Pamela Voorhees. They, they found an actress that could do um, her voice very well, Betsy Palmer's voice. And um, said, you know, could you write some, you know, some story like, you know, this is the night that Jason was um, disappeared uh, in the lake. And this is her talking to the police department about her son, you know, and, and what she believes happened and stuff. And it was my chance to also kind of talk about Jason's father and that the, the person that, you know, uh, everybody thinks is Jason's father, Elias, is actually not his father. You know, that's the man that she married, but she was raped by this really strange, frightening person. And um, that's why Elias Voorhees, you know, was always pissed, you know, and beat her and stuff, which is in the comic. Um, but, you know, I wanted to, you know, kind of twist the legend and say, no, the, the you know, the actual father is a whole different animal than, than, than what's in the comic book. So we kind of put 
all that together wrote parts almost like a radio play, you know, with uh, the, the, the cops and the, a doctor that came in to talk to her and things. And um, if you play the game, you know, there's like, you know, little um, like Easter egg things, I guess, that you, you hit and, you know, you get bits and pieces of it, um, of, the, of the dialogue. And, you know, I guess if you play the game long enough, you find all the pieces and then you can, you know, kind of have the complete scene to listen to. So that was, you know, my, my contribution. And as I said, I wanted to put something in there about Jason's father that would be different from what everybody else has been thinking. Definitely interesting. But uh, before I let you go, I want to mention again the sloths because you guys have been back the past several years and things have changed both musically and just worldwide. Uh, what kind of fun is that then? performing music again? Well, I mean, uh, obviously I'm, I'm not telling any surprising tales, you know, to say that all of us are in our 60s. And, uh, you know, in, I guess it was about eight years ago now, I think, um, we were all contacted through a private detective because that song that I had mentioned earlier, Making Love, that was done in the mid-60s, turned out that it became a cult hit and there were people that were, you know, wondering who the hell the sloths were. And it really kind of kicked into high gear when somebody on eBay bought an original copy of the 45 making love for $6,650. Now this is a band you never heard of, you know, you don't know anything other than they thought the song was cool because it was kind of a, Bo Diddley jungle kind of beat about it. It's very, you know, kind of funky and very garage sounding, very punk garage kind of the feeling. And that was in you know, the mid sixties. So they, they sought us out and found out, you know, who of the band was still alive and around. And so we did interviews for different music magazines. And I jokingly said, Hey, why don't we get back in the garage? Like we were kids and just play. Now I've not sung or played harmonica or any of that in like, 40 years and, you know, jumped into this as well as the drummer who hadn't played uh, a couple of the, the, the guitar and bass player had been in other bands and stuff. So, you know, we got together and of course we were terrible, you know, the first few months of jamming on Wednesday nights, but then little by little, we started, you know, doing the old songs that we used to do and got better and better. And we eventually played in a club in San Diego and people, you know, videoed us on their on their phones and it went on to uh youtube and the next thing you know there was like people that really wanted to book the band and as a result you know we ended up doing oh i don't know at this point 300 something gigs and we recorded an album of you know all new material um called back from the grave uh we've done music videos that are also on youtube if you look up you know the sloth uh band because um, if you get just the sloths, you're going to get a ton of cute little sloths. But if you get the sloths, the band, you'll get like our music videos and, and all that stuff on there. And then, like, as you mentioned, we have a website, you know, the, the sloths.org. And the, the band, you know, continues to record new music. We're going to, you know, have another album come out, uh, hopefully, where we had planned on doing it this year, but COVID kind of put the brakes on all that. And, uh, you know, but we're, you know, we've got songs that we're, you know, finishing up on that we want to uh, put out another album. And we have a couple more 
tours involved. We had to cancel our tour of Texas because of the COVID thing. So, yeah, we're still very active and very, you know, visually kind of crazy. I mean, particularly myself and the drummer. I mean, we, you know, we perform at 11, you know, uh, in terms of high energy and me going out into the audience and doing things, you know, with the crowd. And I've got, you know, visual effects that I'm doing and smoke effects and fire effects and all this stuff so that the band really is quite, you know, a kind of a visual experience as well as just the music. And, um, you know, it's been incredible to be able to kind of have this career that we wanted to have when we were teenagers to have when we're, you know, in our 60s. So it's been, uh, you know, it's been a great kind of rebirth of something that we never expected to happen. Well, would you say a la Alice Cooper with the stage effects? Yeah, you know, I I, <laughs> I never saw Alice perform live until, you know, after the band. And that kind of came because I had so many people say, you know, this is so much like Alice Cooper in terms of the way you sound, you know, which, you know, wasn't trying to imitate Alice. It's just kind of the way my gravelly voice was. And then, you know, I knew he was doing very elaborate stuff on stage. And I couldn't do that in the little clubs, you know, that we were playing in. So I just scaled it all down to, you know, magic and things that you could do, you know, in a in a club of 100 or 200 people um, as opposed to, you know, big arena stuff. You know, my dream, of course, is to be able to, you know, eventually get to that point where you're playing, you know, those kinds of arenas. And, um, you know, we usually around Halloween time, um, we perform uh, the man behind the mask and, since I kind of sound like Alice, I'll definitely do his voice for the singing of that. And that, you know, the fans just love, you know, that I'm covering that song. And, you know, word got to Alice and, uh, you know, he said, yeah, we, we, should, we should do that together one day, you know, on stage. So I'm, you know, hoping that comes to pass. Nice. So if fans want to find you on social media, uh, best way to do that, or should I go through the band's website there? Yeah, either the band's website, um, you know, uh, the sloths.org or, you know, Facebook for me is, you know, as I'm under Tommy McLaughlin on Facebook. So either way, yeah, contact me. There's also, I've got a, a page on Jason Lives, uh, that I created and then also the book that was written about me and that I'm, you know, kind of answering questions is called A Strange Idea of Entertainment. Conversations with Tom McLaughlin, and that's available at, on Amazon. Um, and there's a site for that as well, Strange Idea of Entertainment, that, that can also reach reach me through. Well, Tom, thank you so much for the time, and best of luck with uh, all future projects. Okay, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact, Jack! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, 
power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out. To contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend whilst in Sail Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Crazy Train Radio. Don't take a nap. 